This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host Glenn Ford. Coming up, when Haitian President Jovenel Moise was assassinated, purportedly by a mostly Colombian band of mercenaries, the regime in Port-au-Prince promptly begged the United States to send troops to Haiti. President Biden initially said no, but that could change any time, since invasions of Haiti have become a habit for the U.S. over the past century. We'll hear from Gerald Horn, the prolific author and University of Houston professor, on the long and brutal history of U.S. and European aggression against Haiti the world's first republic liberated by enslaved people. But first, across the length and breadth of the U.S., states are passing or debating legislation on critical race theory. Or rather, white Republicans are busy making up their own fantastic versions of what critical race theory is, so that they can outlaw those who dare to discuss issues of race in the United States. Here to explain the historical roots of the madness are Paul McComb, a Haitian-American philosopher and sociologist, currently teaching at the University of West Virginia, and writer and political analyst Pascal Robert, also a Haitian-American. Critical race theory, which started as a legal academic study and paradigm, started largely at Harvard Law School under Derek Bell and a whole coterie of academics, was something that was in vogue when I was in law school in the early 90s. I remember vividly reading Derek Bell's book, Faces at the Bottom of the Well, my first year of law school, and taking seminars on the ideas and the uh, philosophies that come out of critical race theory. Wasn't that much of a fan of it then, but my, my, my position on it now is even further. My position on what I understand of critical race theory is that critical race theory is a legal school of thought that is rooted in exposing the historical functionality of the American legal system as a way in which race is the primary motivating factor behind the way in which law and its functionality and utility is practiced in American society. This is an academic discipline that is rooted in the American legal system in its origin. It had nothing to do with general American history. It had nothing to do with whiteness studies. It had nothing to do with Robin DiAngelo. It was about an analysis of the American legal history rooted in arguing that if not the primary, one of the primary motivating factors behind legal development of American law was the subjugation of black people. Now. It is a form of radical, radical liberalism. Is a, I, I would agree with you there. Now, in terms of the trajectory of where this comes from, I saw a podcast, well, a recent podcast, I'm not going to name their name, where they tried to make the argument that critical race theory has Marxist origins. I, say, I think I sent you a text of that podcast. Yes, yes. I think, and I think Paul will agree, I think that's fundamentally incorrect. Derek Bell himself, one of the founders of critical race theory, said he had no use for Marxism. As a matter of fact, if you read one of the most extensive compendiums of the works of critical race theory, I mean, thousands of pages, they cite or mention Marx maybe one or two times at best. The main reason why people are arguing that critical race theory has Marxist origins is because they're trying to equate critical race theory with the phenomenon of critical 
studies or critical scholarship that mm -hmm. comes out of what was known as the Frankfurt School. The Frankfurt School were Marxist intellectuals who left Germany during the rise of the Nazi uh, Holocaust and came to the United States. These are people like Theodore Adorno, Herbert Marcuse, and gentlemen of that light, who, because they were seeing how America, during the rise of the New Deal, and how the working class was being de-radicalized because of the largesse of the New Deal, they became very, very cynical, I would argue, and Paul, correct me if I'm wrong, Mm -hmm. on the revolutionary capacity of Marxism in the West post-World War II and developed an analysis rooted in a critical critique of how American and Western capitalism was socializing working-class Americans and turning them into things like one-dimensional people. One of the more important analysis of the Frankfurt School comes to uh, through analysis of popular culture, analysis of film, of media. So the Frankfurt School was rooted in a critical Marxist analysis of the way in which capitalism post-World War II, post-New Deal, had become such a phenomenon of critical realism that it had neutralized the revolutionary capacity of the working class. Am I correct or incorrect, Paul? Yeah, right. What what would happen is there, two arms would emerge out of critical race theory. As you point out, there's that critical legal studies component with the, people like Derek Bell, et cetera, coming out of the Harvard School. And then you would get late, much later on uh, people like Cornell West, Paul Gilroy, who would attempt to marry uh, the negative dialectic of the Frankfurt School into a critique of uh, Western institutions. Now, so they moved away from the dialectical component. Uh, uh, the the Marxist can you explain before? Okay. Let's explain terms. Explain okay. what the Frankfurt School negative dialectic was. Okay. Uh, Negative Dialectic, a title by the same name, written by Theodore Adorno, it's a form of identitarian uh, logic and philosophy. And what Negative Dialectic argues is that, because remember, the Frankfurt School, they're trying to understand the origins of fascism that would emerge the, uh, during the World War II and after. So they wanted to understand the dynamics, the, the, the fun, what led to the rise of Hitler and others, uh, um, the Soviet Union as well. So you would have works like Herbert Marcuse's One Dimensional Man, as well as his Soviet Marxism. You would get works like Theodore Adorno's uh, uh, Negative Dialectic. And there, there's also a critique of uh, the Enlightenment project itself, because what they realize is reason itself became a form, whereas reason during the Enlightenment was a form of progress uh, leading us to freedom. In the end, what happened was the Enlightenment project that with its emphasis on reason came in turn to oppress uh, individuals because reason became reified as George Lukash argues in, in, um, in his work. So how do we fight that? How do we fight against reason itself becoming oppressive? And Adorno came up with this notion called this concept of negative dialectic, where we must constantly think against the very system we're fighting in. And you can see how that would marry so nicely with uh, this critique of institutions and, and, and critiques of social structure that we, we would find in uh, critical race theory. Because by arguing in negative dialectic that one must always constantly fight against the reification of systems and institutions and social structure, there's an easy marriage between that and the notion in critical race theory that the American institutions themselves were constituted, when they were constituted, were based on race and racism. So 
it was easy for people like Cornell and, and, and Paul Gilroy to marry this. But as Pascal points out, that is not the initial initiative of critical race theory, uh, uh, the critical race theory that would emerge out of uh, critical legal uh, critical uh, legal studies, which is more of a radical uh, a form of liberalism where the, the emphasis is on demystifying the racial component of these laws for a colorblind. And even then, even when crit and legal, critical legal studies, when they point out the fact that a colorblind uh, uh, law as it is written in praxis, it is not colorblind. So that was the emphasis of uh, critical legal studies. So this whole notion of demystifying the racial component of the laws and the institutions of America, the, the, the idea was in doing so, you would lead to greater progress for Blacks and more integration of Black people into the society. But the fact that reason itself, as Adorno points out in the negative dialectics, cannot do that unless you are constantly thinking about or thinking against the very institutions by which we recursively reorganize and reproduce our being in the world. So that was the negative uh, dialectical component that many uh, uh, left-leaning Marxists like uh, um, Cornell West tried to implement in crit critical uh, race theory. This is a very important. So let's recap. Negative dialectics, which was a part of the Frankfurt School critical studies component, which is about realizing that structures that exist in a society are something that you must constantly challenge or they will reify themselves in an oppressive and become, oppressive. And become oppressive. Yes. Right. Understanding that the Frankfurt School scholars were Marxist, we would also understand that part of that dialectic is about challenging the hierarchy of capital. Mm -hmm. Right. And as you said, part of the the argument of the negative dialectics out of the Frankfurt School is that you can never stop yes fighting those hierarchies yes absolutely those should be con consistently you know what i'm saying maybe you could argue maybe like some trotsky say the permanent revo the permanent revolution Revol exactly exactly the famous belief of, of the trotskyists but you said something very important the critical legal studies component that comes out of derrick bell makes the argument that the negative dialectics in other words fighting the structures should be done until what black <laughs> people are able to be integrated, integrated. into the system and function in the system equally as everyone else particularly per law. the law per the law which the then law. is colorblind which is colorblind yes and people will ask well what's wrong with that because what happens at that point you take away the component that challenges the hierarchy of capitalism. And because you make the hierarchy exclusively racialized, it assumes that democratizing a capitalist economic system and increasing black participation means that capitalism is going to allow all blacks to become integrated into the system. When what we have learned in the history of the 50 year counter revolution, the only thing is that happens when you try to integrate into capitalism is that it integrates a black elite tier and it further cannibalizes into poverty, the black poor and what are considered the working poor or the black underclass. Yes. The, the, the thing is, we're OK with the structural differentiation that emerges within capitalist uh, uh, relations of production. Uh, if you understand American society, and this is why many scholars will argue it is the racial component that prevented the class revolution that emerged in Europe, which is why it, it was easy for, for, for this counter, this, this 50 year counter revolution to emerge. Because in American society, it is acceptable. We, we attribute your poverty to a lack of effort. So the ideology by which we constitute American society is okay with the structural differentiation that emerges out of capitalist relations of production. But we're not okay post-1954. We're no longer okay with the organization of race or organizing around race and racial segregation. Even your your rightest right person on the right will argue 
Yes, I'm uh, I'm against organizing our society about race, but we're not against organizing the society around class differentiation. And this is, I think, is is fundamental to understanding the constitution of the American relations of production. Even black people are okay with class structural differentiation to some extent, because we will attribute your poverty to your lack of effort, to, to your cultural, defect. cultural deficiencies, et cetera, as Thomas Sowell and many conservative black economists have made the argument for. Pound cake speech. <laughs> so we're okay with that. But post-1954, we're not okay with racial... Uh, uh, uh. And the thing with critical legal studies and critical and the component... the critical legal studies component of critical race theory is the fact that they're speaking about not individual racism and individual prejudices. They're speaking about institutional racism and structural racism as opposed to individual racism. The law can cannot uh, uh, adjudicate individual racism, but according to legal critical legal studies, the law can adjudicate institutional and structural racism. And that's what the critical, the legal side of critical race, race theory is promoting. Now, the Cornell West negative dialectical component is what they're trying to do is use the to make that argument not only to legislate against individual racism, but also institutional and cultural racism as well. But again. This is the thing, because the differentiation between the Frankfurt School who uses negative dialectics or the argument that you must consistently fight against structures in a society because they will reify oppression mm -hmm. is that because they were Marxists, they realized the crux of that oppression is economic hierarchy. And as a result, that you've got to challenge capitalism. But when we get to the negative dialectics of critical legal studies and even the critical dialectics of critical race studies, the effect is to challenge the hierarchies until you yes. neutralize racial oppression. Yes. Okay, and this is the thing. And that means if you, and if you neutralize racial oppression, right, mm -hmm. in a capitalist hierarchy, then literally. Follow the logic here, people. No, you remain with listen, what you can say is that there are 14% of the population that is white, that is black, 60 some odd plus are, are white, and the rest are other ethnic. As long as 14% of black people are in the ruling class, and the proper percentage of white people are in the ruling class, according to their number, and Latinos and Asians. As long as that percentage is in the ruling class, since the racial stigmatization is gone, everyone else, white, black, or otherwise, as long as they're represented by percentage, can be slaves in America is great. <laughs> no, I, I would agree. And the other component, and the, there's two am I problems. Am I correct? Or yes, no, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. There's two problems that I find with critical race theory. The first problem is the critical in critical race theory is problematic for me. Number one, I don't believe it's critical enough. That's one. The second problem that I have with, with critical race theory is the fact that if you, and this is an attack on the Cornell West, the, the negative dialectical side of critical race theory. If you Remember, the Frankfurt School are looking at how the institutions, and here Althusser's work, Louis Althusser's work is so important, and he has a structural Marxist reading of capital and of Marx as well, more of a Hegelian reading of, uh, of Marx. The institutions themselves, and this is what structural Marxism argues, the institutions themselves are in place to reproduce the relations of production. So Mark Lamont Hill is wrong. And the problem with Mark Lamont Hill, he conflates a, the, the, the structural Marxism of Althusser with, with, with the structuralism that comes out of linguistics. That's why I hate when you have intellectuals doing media stuff because they tend to speak too fast. 
Marx is saying there is a one-to-one -one relationship between the economic base and the ideological superstructure. Structure. This is why the reification of the ideological superstructure, the, the, the reification of the institutions, whether it is the law, your police force, how we organize our streets, all of these are what Althusser called ideological state apparatuses. They are in place to reproduce the, the social relations of production. So if critical race theory is attacking the institutions solely on racial ground, now there's another component of critical race theory that tries to make the Kimberly Crenshaw intersectional argument, and I think that's foolishness as well. But if their attack is on the, the, the institutions from a racial standpoint, you post no threat to the forces and relations of production because the institutions simply replace the relations of production. So how you attacking the impact of the institutions on preventing, remember, if you look at it clearly, critical race theory is arguing that blacks cannot participate in the social structure because the institutions were put in place to prevent them from participating in the social structure so if your attack is on the institutions that are preventing blacks from participating in the social structure once you institutionalize color blindness what happens and blacks are able to participate in the society are you then saying now we have a fair and equitable society and now nothing matters. And this is the brilliant work of Nancy Frazier who wrote Justice Interruptus. It piggybacks on what you said, this 50 year counter revolution because what have black people been fighting for since Brown versus the Board of Education? It's integration, equality of opportunity, recognition and distribution. Now, how does that undermine the, the relations of production? It doesn't. It just gives you bigger fat back and biscuits and a nicer house in a suburban neighborhood. Absolutely. Absolutely. Can the professor talk about what bits of Althusser we should hang on to and which bits we can uh, safely cast away, if any? For me personally, I hold on to, to Althusser's essay. His reading of Marx is brilliant. I believe it, it, his Hegelian reading of Marx and the title of his book is Reading of Marx as well. Is brilliant. I, I believe his critique of Marx and this, there is a distinction that is drawn in Marxist uh, uh, circles between the younger Marx and the, 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 the older Marx. And he argues that many scholars are just reading the older Marx into the younger version, but we have to see Marx as progressively evolving his views. That's A. And his other essay, which is, I think, is undervalued is ideology and ideological state apparatuses. I think that is one of the most brilliant essays that Althusser has ever produced. And there he, he actually outlines how every institution is in place to recursively reproduce the social relations of production. That's what makes the, the essay brilliant. And remember, Althusser is simply building off, and here Mark Lamont Hill is correct, he is building off the linguistics of uh, Saussure, but however, he's just replacing uh, structural linguistics with relations of production. Uh, and he's building off the work of the French scholar, well, he studied the French, but he's not French, Alexander Kojev, who, who takes a Hegelian turn uh, to Marxism. And that's what Althusser is doing as well. He's taking a Hegelian turn. He's actually saying, no, we need to focus. And this is what the Frankfurt School do as well. We need to start focusing. I know this, Pascal and I will disagree here. Pascal is constantly making a, a reference to materialist relations. We need to focus on materialist relations and stop focusing on race, blah, blah, blah. But what the Frankfurt School and Althusser, what they're saying is not, no, there is no way we can experience material reality anymore because material reality has been basically the institutions have replaced the material reality. So we no longer have any direct contact with the material environment. What we have are contacts with the ideas of institutions. In other words, we're so immersed in the ideological superstructure that we've achieved what is called yes. capitalist realism. And, and that's why Theodore Adorno argues that the biggest threat 
to humanity is the cultural industry. Yeah, the culture industry analysis of the Frankfurt School, yes. Paul knows he's read my work, is a very important part of my pop culture critiques, particularly yes. the piece I wrote on uh, Kanye West and the piece I wrote on Clarence Avant, because obviously, you know, I, I was influenced a lot by Adolf Reed because he started doing this, using how black popular culture is used by the culture industry, not only to reify racial subjugation, but racial subjugation within the 50-year counter-revolution and the rise of neoliberalism. And that's one of the reasons why I am a fan of the Frankfurt School is because of its analysis of the culture industry, which I think is one of its most valuable contributions. The right wing hates the Frankfurt School. They call it, you know, the cultural market. Uh, uh, and they would. So, you know, and they would, because what it does is that it demonstrates all of the internal bankruptcy of all of the institutions at the height of capitalist development, which is during the New Deal and afterwards from the 50s into the 60s, and shows how, and one of the reasons why you know, morons like Jordan Peterson hate the quote-unquote cultural Marxists is because the corrosion of American society caused yes. by neoliberalism has demonstrated itself and it's fallen on itself. And they tried to use the phenomenon that actually predicted this to blame it for the actual problem, when in reality, the problem is rooted in the political economy and capitalism's always need to cannibalize itself regularly, i.e. what happened in 2008 with the Great Recession and the economic crash. And, and what, what we see is it, it's actually paradoxical because on the one hand, you have the, the left power elites. And by left, I mean the, your political left, your, 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 your democratic left in this country who actually u- utilize the, the cultural industry to reproduce capitalist relations of production. And then you have the right who are fighting it because, it, as you clearly stated, it's eroding traditional American values. (laughs) And it's interesting because right after grad school, I wrote a book called The African-Americanization of the Black Diaspora. And what I argue is that what's happening throughout the Black Diaspora is that the Black power elites, and in this I include your rappers, your artists, your athletes, et cetera, they have become the bearers of ideological domination in the diaspora. So when you travel throughout Africa, when you travel throughout, uh, it's funny, I was finishing the book when I was in St. Lucia and St. Lucia is a, it used to be a French colony and then the English took it over, et cetera. And throughout the country, you see a young of Creole speaking black kids wearing uh, 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 Tupac shirts, Biggie, they're riding in roll, uh, low riders, listening to gangster rap, and had no clue what they were saying. So what I argue in that book was that uh, the black power elites, meaning athletes, rappers, have become the bearers of ideological and linguistic domination in neoliberal capitalism, and they are used as such uh, uh, by your 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 fi- by finance capital. So let's um, break this down again. What you are saying is that the cultural production of black popular culture in in the 50-year counter-revolution, particularly with the rise of urban hip-hop, is used as an exporter of- To bourgeois blacks. Of capitalist production, values, and socialization to the African diaspora and and to inculcate them in the economic aspirations of basically- Black capitalism via popular culture. A- a- absolutely. Uh, so that makes the front for school were on point when they critique the cultural industry because it, in post-industrial capitalism, it becomes the means of embourgeoisement, as Althusser would say. That was Pascal Robert, the activist and writer, along with Dr. Paul McComb of the University of West Virginia at a webinar on critical race theory as it actually exists in the United States as opposed to the fantasies in the minds of millions of white Republicans. The poor and oppressed majority in Haiti had been mobilized for many months, demanding that President Jovenel Moise step down for a long list of crimes. And then last week, Moise was cut down in his residence by a dozen bullets, purportedly at the hands of Colombian mercenaries. Dr. Gerald Horn and Dr. Jamima Pierre spoke at a webinar on Haiti versus imperialism and neocolonialism shortly before the assassination. 
Their talk on Haiti's history is especially valuable because it provides a background to understand today's events on the island nation. Pierre is a Haitian American who teaches anthropology at UCLA. Horn is a professor of history at the University of Houston and the author of over 30 books, many of which put Haiti front and center in history. From the late 18th century, uh, there were two interlinked profound political processes unfolding. On the one hand, we saw France go into debt to fund a revolt led by slaveholders in North America. Uh, this revolt was a quote success, unquote, uh, leading to the formation of the resultant United States of America, which quickly surged into the lead of captaining the global African slave trade, dominating the slave trade to Cuba as early as the 1790s, and also increasing its own enslaved population by several orders of magnitude, this victory by slave owners was also an ideological victory, a massive ideological victory. Insofar as even today, you have those who consider themselves to be radical and revolutionary, who salute what happened in North America post 1776, despite the fact that it led to mass genocide against the indigenous population and mass enslavement of the African population. There was another profound political process also unfolding as a result of France going into debt. I'm not only speaking of the French Revolution uh, circa 1789, but also the revolutionary process that unfolds on an island oftentimes referred to as Hispaniola, which seeks to uh, recoup the manic exploitation inflicted on Africans as a result of France trying to generate more profit to address its debt. I'm speaking of the Haitian Revolution initiated in August 1791 and a quote success unquote by 1804. You need to realize that the Haitian Revolution was a victory for the enslaved in the first instance, not only the enslaved on that particular island, but the enslaved in the Americas generally. It was a successful revolt of the enslaved, one of the few in world history. It was a victory for all those who worked for a living as slavery, particularly in North America, but not only in North America, tended to drive down the wage level and worsen the working conditions of all working class people. Uh, it's no accident that after the abolition of slavery in the United States circa 1865, mm -hmm. you had a surge in organizing of unions and the surge in the movement for eight hour day. Uh, the Haitian revolution represented a general crisis of the entire slave system in the Americas that could only be resolved with its collapse, which of course took place in Brazil by 1888. It was particularly inspiring in North America. Uh, you may know that the revolt known as Gabriel's Revolt in Virginia in 1800 was directly inspired by the Haitian Revolution. You may know that the revolt in South Carolina spearheaded by Denmark Vesey a seafarer was also directly inspired by the Haitian Revolution. And as a seafarer, it's possible that Denmark Vesey himself might have sailed into Haiti at one point or another before launching this revolt in South Carolina. You may also know that the early, the early historians of the revolt of Nat Turner in Virginia in 1831 argued that part of Nat Turner's crew were Africans who had been brought to Virginia by fleeing slave owners in the wake of the success of the Haitian Revolution. These Africans had seen the slave owners flee in terror from the Caribbean and wanted to replicate that model in Virginia. 
it's also striking to note that uh, on May 25th, 2021, the Washington Post had a fascinating story about a black community on Maryland's Eastern shore known as San Domingo. It was constituted, or it still is constituted, I should say, of Africans who had fled to that part of North America from the Caribbean uh, as a result of the tumult in what became Haiti between 1791 and 1804 and established what could fairly be called a maroon community that continues to exist that is far off the beaten track and even today is difficult to reach. You also see the impact of the Haitian Revolution in North America by the fact that so many Black Americans upon freedom uh, took the surname of either Mingo or Domingo, that is to say referring to the Caribbean site where this revolutionary process unfolded. Uh, some of the football fans may be familiar with Gene Mingo, a Black American who is still with us and is regarded as the first Black American place kicker in U.S. football. Uh, more relevant to events today is the Black American actor Coleman Domingo, uh, currently starring in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and also appearing in the previous movie, uh, if Bill Street could talk. You may be familiar with the fact that so many black neighborhoods in the United States are referred to as Haiti, H-A-Y-T-I, which was the older uh, designation or descriptor uh, for what we now call Haiti or Haiti. I'm speaking in the first instance of the Haiti community of Durham, North Carolina. It's also important to describe and sketch the impact of the Haitian Revolution on the global correlation of forces, the Haitian Revolution forced London, the then reigning superpower, to speed up its abolitionist process, abolishing its role in the African slave trade by 1807 and abolishing its role in enslavement of Africans in the Caribbean, Jamaica, Barbados, et cetera, by 1833-1834, uh, London recognized uh, much sooner than its revolting spawn, now known as the United States of America, that as a result of the Haitian Revolution, a process had been ignited that could not only lead to the liquidation of the lives of settlers and slave owners in the Caribbean, but more importantly, to them at least, the liquidation of their investments, because we know that like successful revolutionaries anywhere and everywhere, the Haitian revolutionaries recognized that their process was not safe as long as enslavement of Africans pertained and existed in the neighborhood. And so there's credible evidence to suggest that in particular, the Haitian revolutionaries helped to ignite a revolutionary revolt of the enslaved in Britain's chief colony Chief Cash Cow, speaking of Barbados, not to mention that one of the leaders of the early, earliest stage of the Haitian revolutionary process, uh, speaking of uh, Dutty, uh, was Jamaican and helped and is given credit, Bookman Dutty, for uh, helping to uh, light the fire itself. From that point forward, you, you saw a de facto alliance between revolutionary Haiti and abolitionists in London, uh, they helped to put pressure on the independent state known as Texas, which seceded from Mexico in 1836, just like slave owners in North America generally had seceded from London in 1776. That is to say, seceding from Mexico because Mexico under a president of African descent, Vicente Guerrero, had moved to abolish slavery in Mexico. And rather than accede to that decision, uh, Sam Houston, Stephen F. Austin, and the other cutthroats and bandits who formed independent Haiti uh, set up an independent republic, so-called. It's important to note that during its brief existence, 
between 1836 and 1845, independent Texas quickly became one of the most uh, prolific slave trading nations in the hemisphere. The Lone Star flag of Texas, independent Texas could be found off the coast of Brazil, off the coast of Angola, and of course, off the coast of Cuba, with Galveston, Texas being a major slave port. And indeed, as late as 1860, Texas, which was forced under pressure from Haiti and Britain to join the United States in 1845, but as late as 1860, in Galveston, Texas, you had reports of hundreds of Congolese being smuggled into Galveston to labor as enslaved people. We also know that after the freebooter and pirate William Walker and his band of cutthroats invaded Nicaragua in the 1850s and sought to reestablish slavery in Nicaragua, which had been barred in the 1830s, it was pressure in the first instance from Haiti and abolitionists in London that led Mr. Walker uh, to be forced out of power. And we also know that a man who until recently was honored by a massive statue in Richmond, Virginia, I'm speaking of the Confederate leader, uh, Matthew Fontaine Maury, oftentimes regarded as the father of US oceanography, uh, in the 1840s, uh, he had the idea that somehow the Mississippi River Valley was connected to the Amazon River Valley in Brazil. And so therefore, the United States should seize the Amazon River Valley and then deport uh, Black people from the United States as enslaved workers to the Amazon River Valley. Uh, he, of course, not only was opposed by Haiti and Britain, but he was also opposed by numerous slave traders who thought that the better idea was to kidnap Africans from Congo, Angola, and Mozambique and drag them into Brazil to become enslaved workers. And indeed, it's important to note that as late as 1863, after the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, President Abraham Lincoln was negotiating with the Brazilians to deport all of the US Negroes to Brazil. Uh, what happened, of course, is that Brazil said, thank you very much, we have enough black people, and therefore Mr. Lincoln was stymied. But it was not all victories and successes for the Haitian Revolution. And one of the most important and stunning victories for covert action in Washington, uh, anticipating uh, so-called victories of covert action in Iran in 1953 and Guatemala in 1954, in 1844, the United States worked with forces on the eastern side of the island that Haiti shares to initiate and ignite a split in the island that led to the formation of the Dominican Republic. But alas, in 1861, when the US Civil War was started by slave owners who sought to overthrow the Lincoln government so as to enslave Africans forevermore, the slave owners were backed, at least informally, by the French merchant class, the Spanish merchant class in Cuba, the British merchant class in Mexico. And indeed, you may know that France had seized control over Mexico shortly after the US Civil War began. And one of the reasons why that conflict lasted so long was because these European merchants supplied the slave owners from their base, particularly in Tampico, Mexico, and sending goods, including munitions, to Galveston and other places in Texas, which escaped from the US Civil War relatively unscathed. The Haitian government, of course, stood against these diabolical schemes, and the Haitian government was one of the few allies, one of the few clear allies that the United States had when it was subjected to this traitor's rebellion. But that did not necessarily bring favors and benefits uh, to the Haitian government, not least because shortly after the revolution triumphed in 1804, 
the Haitian government was saddled by a reparations bill uh, from France. That is to say, not that the enslaved were compensated with reparations for working for centuries for free, but that the slave owners who lost their investments when the enslaved revolted were compensated. And that debt saddled the government of Haiti with an unconscionable burden that arguably has hampered the Haitian government to this very day by way of comparison. Keep in mind that after Britain abolished slavery in Jamaica, Barbados, et cetera, in the 1830s, it too compensated the slave owners. And as recently as 2015, the descendants of the slave owners were still being repaid by London for losing their investments when slavery was abolished. I should also mention that Haiti, uh, particularly during the era of slavery and US apartheid or Jim Crow, absorbed thousands of black Americans who were fleeing from terror. And of course, whose descendants still continue to reside uh, in Haiti. You should also know that the United States in a sense in a typical fashion sought to repay Haiti after Haiti had supported the United States government during the Civil War by seeking to seize a major Haitian port in order to establish a US military base. And then finally, uh, in 1915, uh, Haiti was occupied by forces from the United States government, an occupation that lasted for two decades, more or less, and which further hampered and hindered the ability of Haiti to develop. On that point, I will stop and turn the platform over to my dear friend and comrade, Professor Pierre. Thank you so much, Professor Horn. I'm honored to be here with you all. I'm going to talk about um, what's going on right now in Haiti and then um, we can go back and um, um, have a discussion. So on February 7, 2021, the five-year presidential term of Haiti's uh, Jovenel Moise was set to expire. Um, Moise, however, has refused to step down. And in response, oppositional parties, local civil society groups, including students, feminist groups, various clergy, have called for his immediate ouster. So and back in February, there were calls for a general strike along with anti-government protests, um, in response, Moise, was, who has effectively ruled um, by decree since January 2020, fired a number of Supreme Court justices, including the president designate by, um, designated by um, uh, the oppositional political parties. Now, how Haiti arrived at this moment is predictable and unsurprising. Moise's election was marred by fraud, extremely low voter turnout, and protests challenging his candidacy. Relatively unknown, Moise entered the political arena in 2015 when he was handpicked by his predecessor, Michel Martelly, a compa performer who was an open supporter of the Duvalier dictatorship and who himself was installed against the wishes of the people in, the, in 2011 by Hillary Clinton of the Obama administration. As with Martelly, Moise's path to the Haitian presidency was paid by US, Canadian, and French funding and support. Moïse claimed to have won the 2015 elections, but the results were nulled after widespread allegations of voter fraud sparked protests around the country. Now, runoff elections were not held until November 2016, and with only with less than 21% of the Haitian population turning out to vote, Moïse again claimed victory. Now, this is where the constitution comes in, and this is what he's using to not step down from power. Now, according to article, um, 134 one of the 1987 Haitian constitution, the five-year term of the president begins and ends on February 7th, following the date of the elections. However, article 134.2 of the constitution states that if there are delays in the election, the president elected enters his functions immediately after the validation of the ballot. Um, and his mandate is considered to have commenced the 7th of February of the year of the election. So in Moise's case, since his initial election was validated November 2016, after a delay from 2015, his term, according to the constitution, began February 2016, 
not February 2017. And this is important to remember. Uh, and members, members of Haitian civil society, including the Haitian Bar Federation, have argued since, since Moïse's term began in 2016, it should end in 2021. Moïse has rejected this argument, claiming that his term in office ends in 2022. So at this point, most people in Haiti think that Moïse is the illegitimate president of Haiti and he's, he's running without any mandate. Now, but Moïse has never had a clear mandate to, to govern. He has been an unpopular figure in Haiti and his government has been met with massive protests long before this year. And there were massive protests in 2016 and in 2018 and in 2019, there were some of the biggest protests which lasted weeks and months shutting down the country. Moïse has been accused of money laundering, of embezzling Petro-Caribe funds, which we can talk about in the question and answer. And he has been linked to a failed plot to steal $80 million from Haiti's central bank. In addition to expanding the re reviled Haitian army, Moïse has established a new and powerful national intelligence agency, which is um, reminiscent of the Duvalier's notorious Tonton Makout. State-sponsored gang violence has also been a feature of Moïse's rule, including the horrific La Saline massacre. But most disturbing is Moïse's attempt to rewrite the Haitian constitution of 1987, which would redirect most power to the presidency while providing full immunity to the president during and after his term. The referendum for a new constitution the vote planned for June 27th of this year has raised fear among the Haitian populace that Haiti is returning to a dictatorship similar to the 29-year brutal dictatorship, Duvalier dictatorship. Most recently, massive anti-government protests and anti-imperial protests um, were reignited from late January. They were, mass, um, they were massive during the month of March and April. And though they have tempered off over the past month because of growing, growing state and armed gang violence, the people continue to make the same demands. Millions have called for the resignation of the corrupt and anti-democratic figure of the illegitimate president, Jovenel Moïse. Now significantly, and I can talk, and I will talk about this in just a short while, the protests have also drawn attention to a number of imperialist entities that have been and continue to play influ in extremely influential roles in Haiti's current political crisis. These entities are the core group, the United Nations, the United States, the U.S. State Department, and the institution um, of the Organization of the American States. The latest protests have been against this referendum that Moïse is trying to use to change the Constitution, specifically what continued the call for against for Moïse's ouster and against imperial meddling. Now, while the protests have been against Moïse, I argue that it's actually too easy to just focus on Moïse. And as calls for his removal increase, as he's seen as the dictator in the making, many critics, especially Western critics, have fallen to the typical trap, trap when it comes to Haiti, focusing on this one individual, what I call the black death spot, right? As a source and, and root of all evil in Haiti's politics. By doing so, we, we don't raise the important questions about how Moïse came to power, how he has been able to get away with his increasingly autocratic actions and how even now he continues to survive calls for his ouster, let alone the curtailment of his powers. So to ask these questions is to recognize that Moïse is not a purely sovereign political force. Instead, he is the product of a, a broader system blocking Haiti's democratic path to sovereignty, a system that is built and maintained by white Western imperialism. But to understand how this functions, white Western imperialism in Haiti, is to recognize that Haiti has been under foreign military rule and continues to be under foreign political control. Throughout the country remain under their control. So Moïse is currently serving his purpose, which is why he continues to get support. At the same time, I think, continuing popular resistance is to be expected. You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.